Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. Jimmy Carter became the 39th president of the United States as an unlikely ascendant to national power. This former Georgia governor and peanut farmer from Plains was known in that state as a progressive, racially moderate Democrat who believed he could win the White House with an approach to reducing defense spending that would appeal to Democrats and an emphasis on eliminating government waste that appealed to conservatives. He ran against Republican incumbent Gerald Ford, who was nominated in a contested convention and who suffered from the hangover of the Nixon years. Carter won. However, he inherited a moribund economy during which the term stagflation was coined. And while he tried to reorient American foreign policy, things turned sour on the domestic front. Americans found themselves waiting in hours-long lines to get gasoline. Carter told people to turn down their thermostats in winter to save energy. He had the lights on the Capitol, the White House, the Washington Monument, and other federal buildings extinguished and proposed legislation calling for long-term limits on oil imports. But having promised never to lie to the American people, he added that all the legislation in the world couldn't fix what was wrong with America. He described the nation as facing a threat from within. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. The erosion of our confidence in the future is threatening to destroy the social and the political fabric of America. It was a speech Americans didn't like. Jimmy Carter had some wins during his presidency, but the obstacles outweighed them. Among the biggest was the Iranian hostage crisis. Unrest over his administration's inability to free the 52 Americans held captive in the American embassy in Tehran was one factor that led to the landslide victory of Ronald Reagan. But Carter's one term in office was followed by a post-presidency that set an example of how a former commander-in-chief can work for the good in the world. At 98, this oldest living and longest married of all American presidents has entered hospice. So this hour, we look back on his life and legacy. Joining us is Douglas Hicks. He's president of Davidson College. Mr. Hicks, or Dr. Hicks, interviewed the former president just three years ago at the Carter Center while he was dean of the Oxford College at Emory University. Thank you for being with us this morning. Welcome. Good to be with you, Mike. And Dr. Alan Lickman is with us. He is Distinguished Professor of American History at American uh, of History at American University in Washington, D.C., who teaches a course on American presidents and whose prediction system has correctly predicted the outcomes of all U.S. presidential elections since 1984. You want to predict the next one right now? You'd have to pay me a lot more to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth is, it's a little bit early to make yeah. the prediction. Sometimes my keys to the White House fall in place early, but sometimes they only fall into place during the election year. And, you know, in this time of turmoil, uh, I'm not ready to make a prediction. 
Okay. Well, welcome back to the program. Thank you for being here. And I'm going to start with you because before we talk about uh, uh, President Carter's time in office and his time out of the White House, let's talk about uh, his rise to the White House in the 70s. He graduated from the Naval Academy. He was a, an engineer. I've often heard him called a nuclear uh, scientist. He served in the Navy beginning in 1946, uh, went, uh, went to, became Georgia, went to the state Senate in Georgia, became governor there, I think, in 1971, and then president in 76. And, of course, he revived his family's ailing peanut farm in the interim. But he was a Southerner from a very Southern state at the time, a Southerner with progressive ideas about racial integration. How did he rise through Georgia politics to become the governor? You know, it was not an easy path for Jimmy Carter. In his first campaign for governor in 1966, he lost a three-way primary that included, among others, the rabid, notorious racist Lester Maddox, you know, who was famous for holding out an axe handle at his chicken restaurant saying, you know, no, no end people are going are going to be here. And as you point out, he had to kind of follow a very, very difficult path on race in Georgia in the 1960s and early 1970s. At times, he came off as a strong civil rights advocate, but at times he came off a bit of the opposite, uh, criticizing one of his opponents for uh, meeting with Martin Luther King Jr. But let's not forget, Jimmy Carter was a political genius. That's often lost in the accounts of Carter because obviously he got beaten so badly in 1980, and I can explain why that happened a little bit later. Correct me if I'm wrong. But the guy was extraordinary at politics. He remembered everyone. He was a genius at retail politics. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, You mentioned that he had kind of uh, differing views on uh, segregation. On the one hand, uh, one of his first speeches as governor, he said the time for racial discrimination is over. On the other hand, I believe at one point he was against a bill that would have ended busing to achieve integration. Is that correct? That's correct. And, you know, that that didn't really mark him uh, out of out of the mainstream of Democratic politicians. Uh, I believe uh, our current president, Joe Biden, was critical of bills to create forced busing as well. As I said, you know, in those times, Jimmy Carter had a trot, a very narrow path in Georgia politics when it came to race. Well, we have to go back to those times because in 1971, it's 1971, and he's the governor of Georgia. And earlier in his, very early in his administration, he said, the time for racial discrimination is over. Uh, Today, we're witnessing... uh, this veiled uh, discrimination going on in certain places around the country. But this was 1971, calling it out. How did that go over, and why didn't that hinder him and his support for a presidential run five years later, particularly from voters in the South? It didn't hinder him in his presidential run because it enabled him to triangulate between his strong Southern roots and Southern support, and at the same time appealing to the mainstream of Northern Democrats at the time when you were really getting into a strong civil rights movement. Let's not forget, it was a Southerner, Lyndon Johnson, 
who presided over the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. This was also a critically important transition period when the White South was still pretty strongly democratic, and Jimmy Carter did very well in the South. And at the same time, you were beginning to get this transition of the White South turning Republican. Lyndon Johnson reportedly said, after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, I have just turned over the South to the Republican Party, and that was a pretty prophetic. And let's not forget, Jimmy Carter was the right man in the right place at the right time. He rose to national prominence in the wake of the awful Watergate scandal, when people were disillusioned with their government, disillusioned with Washington, disillusioned with the political establishment. And here was this relatively fresh, unknown guy, but yet a outsider, kind of like Andrew Jackson, although very different personality, who maybe could clean up the mess in Washington, and who was an unquestionably moral Christian man. You know, in today's politics, we have kind of lost sight of the importance of character. You know, particularly in the age of Donald Trump, character doesn't seem to matter anymore. Well, I think Jimmy Carter showed character does matter. And he was, and at the time, very appealing as a truly moral man. First evangelical Christian, a Democrat, to be nominated and elected president. Yeah. Uh, Doug Hicks, uh, you spoke to him not too long ago. Uh, he used his presidency in part to promote, among other things, human rights, uh, of which ending racial discrimination is certainly a, a part. And when you spoke to him in 2019 at the uh, Carter Center in Atlanta, he made this statement. I think the main foundation of all human rights is to seek equality. That's certainly part of what America professes, but it's a concept that we've had great difficulty realizing since the very beginnings of the Republic. How do you account for him being so far ahead on this issue? Well, as Alan said, it was complicated as he navigated the difficult path in Georgia coming up as governor um, to run for president. But one of the things that uh, is so comes through so clearly when you uh, read his work or you speak with him in person is his Christian commitment. Uh, after all, his Nobel Prize speech was essentially a statement of faith, a confession of faith, um, saying that he believed in Jesus Christ. And um, I believe that his integrity is uh, so strong, and it's from his faith that he has this commitment and moral equality, uh, regardless of race, gender, religion. And he, he then relates his commitment to equality that for him comes from a Christian grounding to uh, other traditions, to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. He sees a kind of fundamental um, moral foundation in all of those together uh, that, that has guided him since, since he was uh, at the Naval Academy. And I, and I believe it was in, later in your conversation with him uh, at Emory where he talked about the, uh, the peace talks, the Camp David peace talks with Menachem mm. Begin and uh, Anwar Sadat of Egypt. Uh, and although he's a Christian, Begin was a Jew, Sadat was a practicing Muslim, and he had respect for each of those faiths and knew that each of those men's were, uh, men were as devout in their belief system as he was in his, and that helped add some gravitas and respect, which I guess added to the fact that he was able to accomplish what he did there. 
Absolutely. He, uh, President Carter surprised me when I interviewed him that he said he didn't think that the peace talks would have been possible except for the devout faith of, the th of each of the three. And um, what an amazing statement from an evangelical Christian leading America to say that it was the devout faith and their shared commitment to prayer and practice um, that led them to be able to trust one another enough to, uh, to strike the accords. So he ran for president in the years following the assassination of John F. Kennedy and his brother Robert and that of Martin Luther King Jr. He ran following the Watergate scandal, which really destroyed a lot of trust in American leadership uh, at the White House level. He, he followed into the White House a, a man who was the first unelected vice president, the first unelected <clears throat> president uh, of the United States. Uh, how did all of that and the Vietnam War uh, Alan, a play into the voters' decision to take a chance on this peanut farmer from Georgia? <laughs> well, according to my keys to the White House, American presidential elections are essentially votes up or down on the performance of the party holding the White House. And that, of course, was the Republican Party, which was in tatters going into the election of 1976. Uh, Gerald Ford, as you say, was the first unelected appointed vice president and became president upon Richard Nixon's resignation in disgrace at the, uh, as a result of the horrific Watergate scandal, which by the way, was not just the break-in at the headquarters of the Democratic Party, but was vastly uh, more than that. It was the illegal cash uh, campaign contributions. It was the dirty tricks, the attempt to manipulate elections. It was the wiretapping of journalists, the wiretapping even of administration officials. It was illegal break-ins by the so-called plumbers organization. The worst scandal to date in the history of the United States. The administration had also faced the humiliating loss of the Vietnam War, epitomized by those horrible images of uh, Vietnamese trying to climb on to the, the helicopters that were and leaving with, And with uh, that, we, I Saigon. have to interrupt you because we have to stop. I'm sorry. We'll come right back with more in a moment in Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at Mazda of South Charlotte. Com. It's Charlotte Talks on Listener Funded 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. We're talking about President Jimmy Carter, his presidency, and later on his post-presidency with Doug Hicks, the president of Davidson College, who knows Mr. Carter, interviewed him uh, at uh, when he was at uh, uh, Emory University in Atlanta, and Dr. Alan Lickman, who's a professor of history at American University. I had to interrupt you, Dr. Lickman, as you were talking sure. about all of the troubles in America that led up to yes. America taking a shot at uh, Jimmy Carter as president. Go ahead, finish your thought. This was a truly troubled time. But, you know, and, and Jimmy Carter was, you know, an unknown force, really. There was a, a show in those days called What's My Line, in which this <laughs> a panelist had a guess who, who the guests were. And Jimmy Carter came on the show. And guess what? No one had any idea who he was. He really did come out of nowhere to win the presidency. But he, you know, was sort of the perfect antidote to the era of Watergate and Viet Vietnam, a supremely moral individual, an outsider, untainted uh, by the ills of Washington, and who promised to 
give us uh, a moral outlook on the world in contrast to the corruption of the Nixon administration. But, you know, it wasn't all that easy. You know, it was predicted that Carter would win in the landslide. We only won by a couple of points. Uh, it was not an easy uh, campaign for Jimmy Carter to win, despite what the pundits had to say. But again, he was the right man in the right place at the right time. And we'd had Southern presidents before. You you mentioned uh, Lyndon Johnson, who was famous for picking up beagles by their ears, something that I guess people in the North don't do. I don't know. But w when Jimmy Carter came to the White House, I remember the political cartoons that were in all the papers about the they would draw the White House with these white these painted white tires in the front yard and a jalopy sitting there because he was from the South. And of course, he had his brother Billy, who was notoriously, a, a, I think, a beer drinker at the time. And Billy was a, was a big problem for Jimmy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Miss Lillian. So he was portrayed as this Southern hick, uh, but. Kai Bird, the author of The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter, wrote a guest essay in the New York Times recently in which he wrote that Carter was tough. He was extremely intelligent, probably the most intelligent, hardworking and decent man to have occupied the Oval Office in the 20th century. And he goes on to say that he remains the most understood American president of the last century. I think, Dr. Lickman, you agree with that. And you also agree. have a little I... side story that talks about something about Jimmy Carter that we may not no. Yes, there's a lot to Jimmy Carter that we don't know, you know, and a lot of accomplishments that have kind of been lost, you know, establishing the energy and the education departments. We talked about the Camp David Accords, the SALT II agreements. That there, there was a lot that Jimmy Carter, the Carter Doctrine on the Persian Gulf. But I have a story that kind of reveals a lot about the extraordinary character of this man. You had played the speech on the, you know, the crisis of confidence. Some called it the malaise speech, although he never used those words. But, you know, the Carter presidency was kind of reeling in late 1979. And in October of that year, I was a, I was a serious uh, competitive runner, and I was running in the Catoctin Mountain 10K near Camp David. And I'm getting ready on the starting line, and I turn to my right, and there's this skinny, pale guy who looks like he's wearing his underwear. <laughs> and I turn, it's President Jimmy Carter, just a few feet away from me. No, no sign of any secret for service, no protection, totally unpretentious guy there. And I'm thinking, well, maybe I can run with the president of the United States. But now I, I want to win the race, so I'll, I'll run my own race. But... This was the famous race in which Jimmy Carter collapsed, which wasn't a huge surprise. It was the toughest race I was ever in. It's 5K down and 5K up. But some of my friends, much smarter than me, uh, ran with Jimmy Carter. They had a camera. They took the picture that was all over the news, and they made a lot of money. And this was sort <laughs> of portrayed as, you know, the epitome of a collapsing president. But here's, you know, the other part of the story. After the race, and I didn't win, I think I was 10th or something like that. They, they give out the awards, they have this little ceremony. And after collapsing, Jimmy Carter, unheralded again, shows up, imagine that, and gives us all this incredibly moving, inspirational pep talk. No publicity, nobody knows about it. That was Jimmy Carter.
Wow. I want to go back to his faith, uh, Dr. Hicks. Uh, he, he taught Sunday school in Plains, Georgia, until very recently. And when you interviewed him in 2019, you asked him about the role his faith had played in his life and in his politics. And this was his response. We worship Jesus Christ as a prince of peace. And bringing peace to in my own family and and to those around me in Plains, Georgia, or as president, was very important to me. And I, I not only tried to keep our own country at peace, and I was successful in doing that. We never dropped a bomb or launched a missile or fired a bullet while I was president. And that's only happened 16 years out of the 242 years that our country's been in existence. So 16 out of 242 is, is a, almost a miracle in having good fortune and that sort of thing. But, uh, but I, I, I try to maintain peace and promote human rights. It's a remarkable statistic that he holds four of the 16 years at which we were not at war or firing bullets at somebody else. But it was his profession of faith, I think, that really captured the imagination of evangelical Christians leading up to his first run uh, for the White House. He lost that support during his second run. Why? Well, Jimmy Carter was, has one of the most complex faiths of any public leader I've ever met. He's so impressive in the way he can talk and lives into the evangelical language of uh, being a believer in Jesus Christ. And as he said, who is Prince of Peace, and that influenced his approach. I think uh, there are a number of people who thought that he was unwilling to use force, and really the um, Iran hostage situation really was an undoing, uh, the Delta disaster um, uh, with, with the rescue attempt. But one of the things about Jimmy Carter's faith that makes him so unique is not only is he an evangelical who talks about his faith and in a very personalized way, he's also a fierce uh, proponent of the theology of Reinhold Niebuhr. And so uh, he is a political realist who understands that um, there's a difference between the private sector of faith and the public sector of uh, the need for justice and the need for countervailing forces of power. And so on the one hand, he talks about peacemaking and a, an unwillingness to use force. On the other hand, he was, as you said, tough as nails and willing to be uh, forceful and understand that the political regime is different than the individual realm of politics. The way that he mixed his faith and politics, it's very complex. Um, and, you know, when I asked him, uh, is it, do you still believe that it's never justified to lie? He said, uh, he, he didn't answer the question directly, but he <laughs> said, it's, it's always a problem. And um, I will often misdirect or not answer a question um, because I think when you do lie, it becomes a political problem and it's a moral problem. Mm. But he didn't say that he would never lie or never, um, uh, never uh, evade the truth because he understood that the political order was one where real politique was needed and um, that you had to be tough and that you couldn't just roll over. So his, sometimes his piety is played off as innocent or weak. I don't think that's true at all. I'll just end with this. Um, when I asked him how he felt about being known as one of the most successful or the most successful uh, past president in history, he said, I'd I'm honored by that. I'd also like to be known as one of the best presidents in history. 
Unfortunately, I can't control that narrative, um, but he had, he went into some of his accomplishments that Alan also outlined. And it's remarkable, he's a competent man and believes that he did do very important things as president, as well as a long and storied career, 40 some years post-presidency. Let me follow up on Jimmy Carter's faith. Sure, Because I think this is really important because I think evangelical Christianity has taken a turn away from the kind of faith that Jimmy Carter represents. It has become just another kind of interest group that doesn't concern itself any longer with personal responsibility, personal morality, so long as it can promote its own interests. And it has become a controlling of human freedom, you know, supporting the anti-abortion movement, cracking down on uh, gays and, and lesbians. That's not the kind of evangelical Christianity that Jimmy Carter represents. And I think it's very important we understand that what we're seeing today in evangelical Christianity becoming just another political interest group, there is, there is another pathway, and that's the Jimmy Carter pathway. Well, I want to add, from a historical point of view, we've had deists in the White House, we've had Christians in the White House. We have probably have had agnostics or atheists in the White House. I'm not sure we know that for a fact, but that's probably the case. Did his faith and the practice of his faith and the use of that faith as a guiding principle, not only in his life, but also in his decision-making as president, set him apart in some way from presidents before and after? I think it does. I think of all presidents, Jimmy Carter stands out as being guided by his faith. After all, there has been no president before or after who has put such a powerful emphasis on human rights, not just abroad, but human rights here at home as well. If we remember anything as kind of a hallmark of the Carter presidency, it is that emphasis on human rights. And that really stands out. For example, if you look at the following Reagan presidency, whatever you may think of Reagan, in many ways he was a great president, but... Uh, Human rights was never uh, a priority. Uh, under Ronald Reagan, we supported some of the world's worst dictators. So long as they were anti-communist, morality didn't matter. And we've seen that run through a lot of presidents, but not the presidency of Jimmy Carter. That leads me to something I wanted to ask you about, uh, Doug Hicks, and, and, and that is uh, in, in, in Kai Bird's essay in the New York Times, he, he quotes Vice President Walter Mondale, who was Carter's vice president, as saying that Carter believed that politics was sinful and that the worst thing you could say to Carter <laughs> if you wanted him to do something was that it was politically the best thing to do. He believed in leadership, he believed in morals, he believed in making decisions because they were the right thing to do, if not the expedient thing to do. But the presidency is a political office. Was that both his, 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 uh, his great attribute and his Achilles heel? Well, when, when Mondale was talking about that and using the word political, um, he was contrasting it with moral. So I have a more complex view, and I think Carter has a more complex view of the political order. And again, Carter's favorite person to talk about in this area is Reinhold Niebuhr. And so it's not that um, anything in the political sphere is sinful. It's that sometimes when you have to get your hands dirty, 
um, that's a fundamental part of, of the political order that's not part of the personal or private order, the order of faith and love and agape. Um, justice is an approximation of love. It's the best we can do in the political order. So Carter was very comfortable with that work, but he understood that there were times that um, he wanted to be moral within the political order, which sometimes meant um, pushing the bounds or going against uh, what he might have done, say, with his family in Plains, Georgia. But he didn't, he didn't think the whole order itself was something that he was too good for or wasn't to be a part of. And that's why I think it's important to understand the political realism that grounded what he was doing. Um, so that's that's one of the more complex views of uh, political and uh, and faith in politics that we've ever had. And just remember, if there were an in integrity index, if we had an integrity index, Professor Lickman, you could probably develop this. Um, probably could. He would be 100%. He'd be 99% yeah, of the time in the heat. Exactly. And so that's fundamental, and that's why he has uh, worn so well. Uh, before we run out of time, I, I, he's a, uh, he had a one-term presidency, and many one-term presidencies are viewed as failures, and many people do view his presidency as a failure, but he had a lot of successes, which we don't talk about very much. Let's talk about them for just a second. First of all, he deregulated the airline industry, and that doesn't sound like much, but it put average people onto airplanes. It increased travel because they couldn't get on those. They couldn't afford it before they deregulated the airline industry. He and that, by the way, set a precedent for the Reagan administration. Yes. You know, we credit Reagan with deregulation, uh -huh. but it was really Jimmy Carter who started it all. And he deregulated natural gas. Now, natural yes. gas has become a boogeyman in, in modern times, but back <laughs> then it helped lead, pave the way for energy independence. He worked on putting in airbags and seatbelts in cars. He made the controversial decision on day two of his presidency to uh, declare unconditional amnesty for Vietnam-era draft evaders, a very controversial decision. But, his but very moral. Very yes. moral. But would you say that his biggest decision or biggest accomplishment was the Camp David Accords? Oh, I think no question the Camp David Accords are the singular accomplishment of the uh, administration of Jimmy Carter. You know, the Middle East and the conflicts between uh, Israel and the Muslim nations have been a thorn in the side, not just of the U.S., but the world for so long you know dwight eisenhower back in the early 1950s says you know nothing is going to be accomplished in this critical part of the world until we can reconcile israel with with the muslim nations and uh to stop what was a state of war between israel and the most largest and most powerful uh Muslim state uh, of Egypt was an accomplishment that many thought was impossible, could not be achieved. And maybe Jimmy Carter was the only president who could achieve that, as Doug points out, who could bring together these two other people of faith, who could sit with them day after day in, in Camp David, who could understand each other and, and finally reach this historic accord. I'm not sure any other president could have done that. He also I'd faced... add that if I might, um, I taught a book by Harold Saunders called The Other Walls. And for me, it was an image about uh, Carter and Sadat and Begin 
And it, it was uh, Carter's integrity that allowed him to help break down those walls of uh, interpersonal trust that um, and distrust that led to the to the accords. And so, for me, as, as Carter is so proud of talking about, um, it was his faith and his moral commitment that allowed him to build those relationships to make that happen. And here's an example of someone who used the individualized personal relationships to change the political sphere, and uh, is incredible outcome because he was willing to break down the psychological, emotional, even spiritual walls um, instead of talking directly about the politics or the military. Despite uh, his many accomplishments, he did face a significant number of crises. He inherited one when he came into office, an economic crisis that he'd almost solved, but then by the end of, the uh, end of his presidency, something else cropped up economically, and that included the energy crisis, which we'll talk about when we get back. And I also want to spend some time talking about that national malaise speech in which he told America essentially to, to, to get with the program. We're going to come right back with more in a moment in Charlotte Talks. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. We're talking about the life and legacy of President Jimmy Carter, Doug Hicks is with us. He is the president of Davidson College, who interviewed Mr. Carter, uh, I think on more than one occasion, uh, at Emory University. Alan Lickman is also with us, professor of history, distinguished professor of history at American University in Washington. In 1977, uh, Jimmy Carter delivered a televised speech declaring that the energy crisis that America was facing at the time was the moral equivalent of war, harking back to how Americans sacrificed during World War II for the war effort and urging energy conservation on the part of all Americans. What, what led, Doug, to that crisis? Why, 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 why were we facing those long gasoline lines? Well, Remember? Uh, a shortage of oil and uh, the need but for... Why? <laughs> why? Well... I might I might defer to President Lickman or to uh, Alan Lickman on that, um, but he was facing an environmental. As you said, it, it was it was OPEC uh, c cutting back on production that led to these shortages. You're you're right. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, um, he was willing to face some of the environmental challenges that we're now seeing in spades, and uh, you know the the ability to uh, to regulate our consumer impulse for energy is something that we've struggled with now for uh, half a century. And it's, uh, Carter was a prophet. He was prophetic about this work, but the uh, he also learned that to come straight in the face of uh, energy use was to find political lobbies and political pressures against him. And uh, Americans weren't quite ready for that message. And so uh, he was speaking as morally as he could, but he may not have had the best political um, antennae up at that time. Yeah, he sat in the White House for that speech. I think it was that speech where he sat in the White House in a cardigan sweater. sweater. I don't think any president had ever appeared yes. on television <laughs> out of a coat and tie, and he got a lot of <laughs> got a lot of criticism for that. Not unlike what Barack Obama got when he appeared in his tan suit uh, many years later. But he was making the, the appeal to Americans to turn down the thermostat in wintertime and put on a sweater to save energy. I mentioned he turned out the, the lights on the federal buildings. He also installed solar panels 
on the mm. White House, which President Reagan then took off the took White off. House. Took <laughs> uh, off. He also went through, as I said, two economic crises in his presidency. The first he inherited from the Nixon-Ford administrations, a severe recession. I think unemployment at the time was at 9%. And his last two years in office were marked by double-digit inflation, high interest rates, oil shortages, which ended the economic and job growth uh, that he achieved through measures that he took and he and Congress put into place at the end of the first economic crisis. Were either of these economic crises, Dr. Lickman, the product of Nixon, Ford, or Carter, or were they just the unlucky recipients of world events? I think to a great extent they were the unlucky recipient of world events. We tend to vastly overstate the power of a president to control the economy. You know, how many jobs did a given president create? Well, the president doesn't directly create jobs. The president can nudge and influence the economy, but he doesn't control the economy. And in particular, the stagflation that plagued the administration uh, late in the quarter term was something new. Uh, that really did stem from fundamental changes in the world economy. We, you know, the classic Keynesian model was you could have high growth and high inflation or low inflation and low growth, but now you were getting high inflation and low growth and high unemployment at the same time. And this was critical to Jimmy Carter's defeat in 1980. Remember what Ronald Reagan kept saying, are you better off than you were four years ago? Ronald Reagan created the misery index, which was the combination of inflation and unemployment, which was over 20 percent. Today, it's, you know, around 10 or 11 percent. And, you know, we're all flustered mm. about inflation and the economy. So uh, really, in many ways, uh, Jimmy Carter, late in his presidency, was overtaken by fundamental changes in the world economy over which he had little control. But as Herbert Hoover, someone who <laughs> knows should say, presidents get the credit for the sunshine and the blame for the rain, and it was raining pretty hard economically yeah. late in the Carter administration. And part of the problem was how, how the Federal Reserve was handling, uh, getting a handle on the economy. They didn't do it quite well enough, let's put it that way. Uh, that, that second crisis that occurred late in the Carter presidency ended growth. It impacted consumer confidence. And after a meeting in the summer of 1979 with uh, government leaders at Camp David, he decided to make a televised speech about our national crisis of confidence, which has come to be known as the National Malaise Speech, in which he told the nation that confidence in America and in the future is not some proverb, but a guiding principle. Confidence has defined our course and has served as a link between generations. We've always believed in something called progress, We've always had a faith that the days of our children would be better than our own. Our people are losing that faith. He was being honest about what he saw. Why was this speech received so negatively, Doug Hicks? Well, confidence is one of those things that you can't talk about directly to say, well, we'll just have confidence. It's actually by talking about it and the fact, the loss of confidence, he was undermining his own message. Um, and it's felt more like a preacher 
at that moment than a, than a president who was trying to inspire confidence in his own leadership. He is, uh, you know, the, in certain ways, he was prophetic about this as well, talking about the questions of uh, national confidence and sense of purpose, how we can all work together and live together and need to rally around things, including economic hardship. Um, if there were a political luck index, um, President Carter would be low. He, he was very unlucky. But he also um, might have missed the ability to um, talk about unity and uh, that being willing to name the truth in this in this particular moment probably did not help him at the ballot box. I don't have time to play that clip again, but if we did and you removed the word confidence from what he saw as the problem and replaced that word confidence with the word division, you could make that speech again today. So, Alan Lickman, as an historian, do you see a connection between that crisis of confidence and the crisis we're living through today and where we have a congresswoman from, of all places, Georgia, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, saying that we should have a national divorce? And if so, if, that, if there's a string that runs through those, how far back does it go? Well, Americans have gone through difficult periods with respect to the health of their society and the health of their democracy uh, many, many times, Great Depression, the Civil War, and somehow we've always got through it. But quite frankly, the crisis of confidence that Jimmy Carter talked about in the late 1970s seems to be almost minor compared to the crisis we are facing today. Perhaps not since the, 19, the 1850s, have we seen the kind of threat to democracy that is being posed today? Uh, Donald Trump is the first president in the history of the country not to concede a lost election. And that's not just a matter of form. Uh, the peaceful transfer of power, which was so drastically interrupted and continues to be interrupted after the election of 2020, is in many ways the bedrock of American democracy. And we still have a, a president, former president, and his followers who still perpetrate the lie and the myth that they were deprived of victory in 2020. And there is absolutely no guarantee that we are going to see a peaceful transfer of power again after the election of 2024. So we have a much more serious crisis today than we had during the Jimmy Carter era. And I think in many ways, the Jimmy Carter speech as kind of, you know, it felt like a, like a big rock when Jimmy Carter delivered it in 1979 was extremely prophetic. It warned that and he was very explicit about this. Yes, you can have policies and programs, but if you don't have a moral core, you have a real yeah. problem. Because uh, and I would add, I would add that uh, in today's world, Jimmy Carter has remained hopeful. And so um, even today, uh, you know, Professor Lickman, uh, Alan just laid out a very bleak picture of today's democracy. And I just would add that um, until his latest days, um, Jimmy Carter has been uh, hopeful and an optimist about where America could go, naming its deepest problems. But, you know, the tagline for the Carter Center has been waging peace, fighting disease, building hope. And for him, he believes there's still resources within Americans 
to cross divides, to come together in faith and trust to address these issues. But if we don't do that, we're, we're facing a very difficult situation. So he's calling on citizens to do the hard work of democracy. I hope Jimmy Carter is right. I was just going to mm-hmm. say, I hope he's, uh, he's justified in his hope yeah. because this, this uh, negation of the, of, the, of the truth of the last election, which there was no fraud and Joe Biden is the legitimate president, the, the clinging to that lie is un-American. The transparent power grab, the desperate power grab is un-American. But this, this, the roots of that go way back. You, we referenced that in Nixon's Watergate attempts to cling to power. We, we go back to, I think, the Iranian hostage crisis. 52 Americans held hostage by students, student revolutionaries in Iran, because America allowed the Shah, the deposed Shah of Iran, to come to the United States. Something that Carter resisted, by the way, even though he gets blamed for it. And Jimmy Carter let him in, ultimately let him in. And that ultimately, the, yes. And that caused the Iranian hostage crisis. But the Iranian hostage crisis allegedly was exacerbated by the Reagan campaign making a deal with Iran to keep those hostages in captivity until after the election. Is, is, there, is there any shred of truth, truth to that? Oh, I think there is a shred of truth. Now, look, the crisis was not perpetrated by Reagan. It raged long before that campaign began. But I, I, I think that there's no question about uh, Ronald Reagan's complicity in the continuation for cynical political purposes of the Iran hostage crisis. You know, it's interesting how Jimmy Carter, the problems he had in the election of 1980. Really, it was the real world, as his campaign uh, chairman Robert Strauss said, the real world is all around us. You know, we have the terrible economy. We have the Iran hostage crisis. We probably aren't able to transcend all that. But maybe we can portray Reagan as another Goldwater, as another radical. And some of his advisors said, that's not going to work. Reagan is no Goldwater. He is a slider. He is going to slide by all of these accusations. And we saw that in the one presidential debate when every time Jimmy Carter tried to land a blow, what did Ronald Reagan do? There you go go again. Yes. Uh, In your conversation in 2019 with President Carter, Doug, he made it clear that faith, confidence in right and wrong, dedication to human rights, democracy, equality were bedrock principles that he has adhered to for his entire life. Uh, and, and the fact that you shouldn't fear failure, that you should accept it as a possibility without being worried too much about the risk. Partial failure and setbacks and, and disappointments are sometimes inevitable. But if we want to succeed in trying to make the world better, we have to do what we are capable of doing and, and not be afraid to try. So he did what he thought was right in the White House, and a lot of presidents, after they leave the White House, kind of disappear. They maybe write a book, they work on their presidential library, and then they just quietly go off into the sunset. Not Jimmy Carter. He continued his diplomatic efforts, uh, his fight for democracy and human rights. Talk about some of the things that ex-President Carter did after the White House, Doug Hicks. Well, first, he... He felt that he had done the right thing, and he was glad that the Iranian hostages, the hostages were released from Iran. And I, I think in a certain way, he felt that he made a sacrifice, his leadership, by holding to his values and uh, was pleased that they got out safe and understood that that had to happen under the next president. Um, since then, he said, you know, he had to 
work with Rosalind to find the, the hope and to start over um, and to make something of his post-presidency and that the failure at the ballot box in 1980, and by the way, he mentioned a few other failures. Some of them were not necessarily deep failures, like when he failed to win the Rhodes Scholarship, he said. Um, <laughs> he's, the Carter Center is one of the most powerful international organizations for human rights and, importantly, fighting disease. And I think he takes as much pride in the fact that guinea worm disease is largely eradicated in most of the world as he does in any of the uh, other work that he's done. So that public health component, um, as well as the uh, human rights component is so fundamental to what he's done. Uh, he approaches everything with such humility. For 40 some years, he invited Emory faculty to come to the Carter Center and have lunch with him. Uh, I had lunch with him and he had one note card and he was asking me questions about my books. And they were not, they were deep questions, deep theological and moral questions. So he's lived a lifetime half of his life as a post-president doing good across the world. Alan Lickman, I want, I want to close with you and, and get a retrospective. I only have 30 seconds, but how will history look back on Jimmy Carter, the man, and President Carter, the president? History will look back at Jimmy Carter, the man, as the best exemplar we've ever had among political leaders of someone with a clear moral commitment and a clear moral vision something that's severely lacking. And I think there will be a more positive reevaluation of the Carter presidency. There were a lot of accomplishments, although as we've discussed, a lot of challenges and difficulties as well. Dr. Alan Lickman is professor of history at American University in Washington. Doug Hicks is president of Davidson College. I want to have you back, Alan Lickman, to talk about the presidential race in, a, in about six months. <laughs> Thank you for the hour. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com.